0: Yes, all right. Luke chapter 9, and even though it's 62 verses, it's a little different than we usually have in the last couple weeks we've had where it's like Jesus um, had one teaching and it just followed suit. But here in this particular chapter, and I think that's why it's so long, is because it's different segments at different times, but yet it's got a theme, and you'll see it as we go through it. So we start with when Jesus... Jesus had called the 12 together. King James says when he called the disciples you're going to notice he calls them disciples at the beginning here and then when he sends them out he calls them apostles. So disciples mean that you are not only a follower of Jesus but you are you are learning you're you are learning from him and an apostle is you're taking what you've learned and you're being sent out to give it. And then I noticed how they come back to what? Learn some more. So it really does make perfect sense, and that's pretty much what he expects from us because we're never done learning. But yeah, we're not supposed to just take what we've learned and sit on it. We're supposed to take what we've learned and go out with it and to be able to, you know, tell what we've learned, to live out what we've learned, and then come back for more to learn. So anyway, this is what they were experiencing too. So they, he called those 12 together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. So, you know, he knows that this is something he has got to start with these 12. He knows that Eleven of them are going to be taken the eleven of these twelve are going to be taken the gospel to the world, and so he's got to send them out sometime and I think here we're talking we're we're past two years I mean I think it's past two and a half years I think we are really even though we're only in Luke chapter nine this chapter Luke uses many of the experiences of Jesus when he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so this is when the disciples should be, they have watched him for over two years, they have learned from him, they've experienced him, and he is saying, all right, now i I have to send you out sometime. I think there's moments Jesus is thinking, like even with us. Okay, I gotta send him out sometime. I gotta start him out some, somehow, some way. And but he's gonna teach them so much from this first time experience. So he is sending them out with what power and authority. Now he's given them power to heal disease and to to um, heal. People from demon possession, and and now maybe we don't have that particular power to do that because we don't need that now. We're on this side of we're this side of the gospel. We're on this side of Pentecost. We we don't need those signs. Jesus needed those. Um, I mean, it helped so much to get the crowd to come. To and he also believed in a whole healing, and so. It was such a great way to present the gospel. They would listen when he took care of them in so many of their needs. They would listen more intently to what he had to say. And, you know, I'll never forget, maybe some of you remember years ago, there was an elderly lady who came every week. Her name was Gay Boss. And and she just she she just loved the soldiers. She loved America. She she was one of those World War II women that lived in the Netherlands and was definitely a part of of you know the Hitler regime and um, and saw all what what you know they did to the Netherlands and they, she was a part of the um, her neighbors. Um, hit Jews, and so she understood all that. So when when they were when the war was over, when they came to America, I mean, there was no one that was more patriotic and loved the United States of America more than she did. And so she, in her in her hospitality, in her oh, she could cook up a storm. And she every Christmas she would. Um, Give her plea to us, and she would say, "Is there any of you who would would make cookies? And they can't be chocolate chip because chocolate melts." So we we got our instructions on exactly what kind and how to pack them. And and then she says, "And I'm packing a box, and I really could use some socks because they really, no soldiers really need socks." And to watch all the cookies and all the socks just being piled up and she would pack those boxes and send them out and then along with those boxes we'd send cards. We would we would write notes. She wanted us to somehow present the gospel. And you can't imagine what we got in return. I mean these soldiers would write us back, but I think it was it was This whole story came to my mind because I think Jesus cared about, you know, how easy it is to look at someone. And the need is right there in front of you. They are so in need of something physically. And what do we do? Oh, I hope all goes well. I'll be praying for you. I mean, it's so easy to do that. Oh, I'll pray for you. And yet, it couldn't be clear of what they need. And I am so convinced that if we care for the whole, like Jesus did, they're going to listen better. And so they were given power, and they were given the authority. But we are given power too. At the cross, remember how we go over this every weekend. I'm not ashamed to keep saying it either, because I think so often we try to live our Christianity in our own strength and power, and that's why we get defeated. But he has given us, if we are willing to activate that spirit, that power that works in us, through us, and out of us. He's given us the authority and that's an awful big word especially if you feel like you know sometimes I do and you feel a little intimidated by uh, you're not being educated a whole lot you know and so you know yet we have the authority. I keep thinking hey if he gave if he gave his authority to those fishermen and that tax collector and and he can do that to every one of us because what is his authority? What authority has He given us? I just heard you say, every word is true. It is the truth, and we can stand on it. And that's why we don't have to be intimidated. We don't have to step back. And so the same power and authority that He gave them, He gives to us. And I'll tell you, it's a pretty wonderful thing to be able to know that we can go in that kind of strength and, and that kind of stand and not have to have step back. So anyway, he um, gave them all what they needed. But that's see, that's another lesson. God doesn't call us to do something for him without giving us exactly what we need. I mean, he's not going to call you to give a concert in front of a thousand people when you can't carry a tune. I mean, this is not going to happen. He would never do that to you. But sometimes I think we know what we mean here he stretches us and sometimes we miss this opportunity because of some self emotion fear and we think we're not good enough but now i hope that these verses start making sense no it's not that we're good enough it's that we have the power and the authority and he is able to do immeasurably more than we what we can ever imagine and he will always equip us he will never send us out unequipped. And, and that's reassuring. And, and then he says and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he gave them that, that ability to be able to talk with such confidence and being so sure. And that's a good sell. When you believe your product, you can sell it. And then he he gave them these instructions. He told them, okay, now take nothing. Take nothing for the journey. It's not that he told them this every time, because he didn't. But this particular time, he told them this, and I do believe it was for a reason. Don't take anything. Don't take any stuff with you. Don't take anything that's going to kind of load you down. That's going to inhibit you. Take nothing. But I think the most important lesson he wanted them to learn is just trust me. Because when I call you to do something, I will supply. He is able to supply whatever we need. We've learned that from Paul in Philippians. But here he is saying to these these men, don't take anything with you. No bag, no staff, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. I mean, that's pack and light, you know, and I haven't learned that art yet, you know, because, you know, isn't, isn't it so true that our concept is just in case, I might need this. And and here, you know, he's telling them, no, 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 just in case, no, maybe I might need Nope, I want you to take none of that because I want you to trust me. I want you to know that I will supply exactly what you need. And then whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Now when you read that, you first have a tendency to think that Jesus was Giving them permission to have a you know have a you know little snit or you know carry a little tantrum on, but that's not it you know like kick the dust you know no it was, this was very cultural that if you if you did that if people would not welcome you or if they didn't listen to you and it was something very important and they could care less. You had, you could shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony. So it was not a tantrum. It wasn't a snit. It was them saying, You just blew it. You had an opportunity to hear. You had an opportunity to respond. You better listen up and you better learn from this experience. So there was quite a bit going on with that gesture. So then they set out and went from village to village. So that was their instruction. And now they went and set out from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. What an experience for these 12. Now here, the Tetrarch heard all about what was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. I mean, Herod just, you know, I think when they, when they were telling him, no, we, could it be John the Baptist raised? Could it be Elijah? Could it be this this prophet of long ago? You know, and all he thought was, John the Baptist, I saw his head. I saw his head on the platter. He was dead, you know. And I, that that statement, I think he was just recalling it couldn't have been more visual and then who then is this i hear such things about this this herod he is a little threatened he is getting a little nervous it could even have crossed his mind that this Jesus who is gaining popularity could it be he might overthrow could it be that he rises rises to this power and then i am nothing or whatever i think he is a little threatened and he tried to see him now i just went forward to when jesus this is luke 23 and i i had to check this out cuz i remembered that that um when Jesus was before Pilate, you know, of course, you were passing him off. No one wanted to deal with it. And so they kept passing Jesus off. And we'll be going through this, you know, in the spring. But but I just wanted to read to you kind of the same, um, this is the same Herod. And listen to these words. Now, Pilate passed him off to Herod because it because Jesus was in his jurisdiction. So when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Didn't he just, didn't we just read that from what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. You know, do a few tricks. He plied him with many questions. You know, and Jesus, knowing this, he knows exactly the attitude, the mentality, the ridicule. You know, he, he knows exactly what's going on in his mind and in his heart, and that he's asking all these questions, not because he seriously wants to know, but because he is, he's trying to trap Jesus in some way. But Jesus gave no answer. This is one of those times where Jesus didn't even justify an answer. He just stood there in front of Herod and wouldn't answer one question. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him, and then Herod and his soldiers started ridiculing and mocking him. I'm sure Herod was really upset with this no-answer business. And so then he turned it into a mockery and a ridicule. And this is when Jesus was dressed in that robe. Herod is the one that dressed him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Listen to this verse. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Isn't that something... They couldn't stand each other before, but now because they are united under one cause, and that is to get rid of Jesus, now they're best buddies. So, just wanted to read that to you. Now, in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they, here they come, they're coming back, and they, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Do you think that they were excited about this? I mean, their first time out, and, and they've been given this power and authority to be able to do what they never thought that they would ever be doing. I mean, that's a far cry from catching fish to all of a sudden curing diseases and, and having spirits, demons come out of people. I mean, that is quite a big jump. That is is doing exceptionally more than what they could ever imagine, or think. And so they were excited to come back and to report to Jesus. And I believe Jesus was just as excited to hear from them. And And he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. I bet that was such lovely times. I bet that was cherished moments when when the disciples had Jesus all to themselves. I mean, because there were crowds all the time, and to have that intimacy with him and to be able to tell their stories and to have his 100% attention, it had to be wonderful. Look at verse 11. But, but the crowds learned about where they were and followed him. Look at Jesus' attitude. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. He welcomed them. He, he instead of saying, you know, really, can you give us an hour and a half? You know, just, just give us some time, please. You know, he welcomed them. And and I, I thought about that. Not only was that the kind of attitude I want, because how often aren't our plans changed in the day? I mean we can we can have our plans all cut and dried. And how something can happen and all of a sudden, you know, we have to do something else. We someone some someone needs us. So we're called to do this and everything is kinda put on hold and our day changes. And how, how do we react when our day changes? And what an example. You know, Jesus welcomed them, and I really believe it was because he, he knew he was on borrowed time. He knew that, that he had this opportunity that he would never get back. Do we ever think about that, that when our plans are changed or when someone needs something and interrupted our day. Do we ever think about it as what an opportunity and I might not get this chance again. I mean, he would never have this particular crowd again. This is a one-time shot that he's got and he welcomed that. And he wanted to make sure he made the most of that opportunity. Now, it must have gone on for quite a while that day because in verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. I don't think these 12 had the had quite had the attitude Jesus did. I think that this whole chapter here is about how our human responses are, how quickly we react in our human nature. And Jesus is going to point out different facets about human nature that they're going to be up against all the time. And this is one of them, because there's going to be days that don't go as planned. They are going to have interruptions they are going to get weary and tired because it seems like they never they never have a chance there's just people around all the time now they have this this chance i think they had they thought they probably were talking among themselves saying how are we going to get these people out of here you know and here was i think a prime thing they're hungry. It's late in the afternoon. We're in a remote place. There's no stores around. Let's send them home. Here we go. And so they wanted them to send home. Thought, thought that sounded very reasonable. And, and then Jesus replies, You give them something to eat. You know, that was, why would Jesus say that? Do do you think that Jesus ever makes statements like that and he's just kind of teasing them? He doesn't tease. He didn't say to them, you give them something to eat because he was really trying to say, I know you can't. No, look what the first verse said. He gave them the power and the authority to do these kinds of things. But how quick self sneaks in there, and now you have got this attitude. And the reason why I think that this this is true is because they answered in this way, instead of saying, you're right, we can do all things through Christ who has given us the strength to do it. Because they have just come from this tour that they did and they were telling Jesus all about miracles that they saw him do through them and now all of a sudden, oh, can't do it? See, I think self just took over and it just blinded them from that power source because they, they wanted their time. And so they answered this way. Instead of saying, you're right, the answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Only this little lunch from a kid. Now, this was said in in a, a an attitude of mockery. I mean, what's this going to do? We got five thousand men here, and we got five little loaves and two little fish. And if we really, if you really wanted us to feed him, we'd have to find some store would have to go and buy food for this crowd. See, you can just tell. This was the human nature response. It's not logical. When I think, goodness sakes, you just got back from seeing all that. But he said to his disciples, I mean, you don't hear Jesus getting upset here. I think you see him thinking, boy, these boys have a long way to go. You know, but I'm going to, I'm going to show them again. Aren't you glad he's patient like that, that he does that with us? Okay, let's go over this again. So he sat them down. He had them, he, the disciples, he said, have them sit down in groups of about 50. So the disciples did so, and everybody sat down. How orderly. You know, Jesus is very organized, because he knew this is the only way you're going to feed 5,000 people. So let's sit them in groups of 50. and It'll be easier to maneuver. See, I think organization is an art that we're losing. I mean, I, I think that I can get so much more done if I'm organized. I think it through and I'm organized. But I'm telling you, the, my next generation, my kids, hey, remember, what's in here stays in here. Um, <laughs> my kids, they fly by the seat of their pants, and I think their classic line is, oh, it'll get done. It'll get done. But in the meantime, I'm watching them run around like chickens without heads, and they're all stressed out. And I'm thinking, if I say nothing, but I would love to say, if you just took a few minutes to organize this, you would get so much done. And I see you're nodding your heads because I think I'm not the only one. We are seeing organization as a lost art. It's just do it as it comes, But I think that's why everybody is just nuts today. Just running around everywhere. It's just crazy out there. And now I can say something because I said the Bible says I think it's scriptural to talk about organization because it's right there. (laughs) I don't know how that will go over. I'll have to think about that one. But anyway, so the disciples did so, and it did go smooth. I would have loved to have been there because I would, have, I would have loved to have my kids there too because I would have loved to have shown them how it works, you know, and I think it did go very smoothly. But this is what I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want to miss and I wouldn't want my kids to miss if we were able to be, you know, flies on the wall or something because this to me was, this is how it works. Taking the five loaves and the two little fish which the disciples kind of looked at it as, you know, kind of a joke. This is what we got. You know, Jesus took it. Instead of laughing about it and said, yeah, we're not going to get anywhere with this, are we? He took it. And I think this is such a major lesson because how many times don't we say to the Lord, I don't have anything to give you. My talent is so minute. I, I'm inadequate. Um, that's why even one of the letters in one of the seven letters in Revelation it has to do with the church that thinks they're just not adequate. They're just, you know, they're just little. And and boy, it's like Jesus says to John, you write to them. You tell them. They're, they're like a pillar. Do you remember that old song that says, little as much when God is in it? And I think this is exactly the visual he wants us to see. The, sure, the, in logic, no. Five a little... A little loaves and two little fish from a little kid's lunch, no, that's not going to feed 5,000 plus. But he takes that little bit, he looks up to heaven, he offers it to the one who can multiply. And he gave thanks, he broke. Wouldn't that been something to watch him take those, those little breads and those little fish and just start breaking them, and then it just never stopped. And it said that they were able to feed the people until they were satisfied. I mean, not just, you know how you don't, no one wants to take the last thing on the plate, you know, because you don't want to be a pig and, and, you know, you just want to make sure there's enough for everybody. And, and so, you know, here they were able to eat until they were full and then, besides that, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and were left that were left over. That is not coincidence. That's a major lesson. When are we going to realize that he can take our little and he can multiply it, but you have to be willing to give it and believe that he can do that. Now we're in another section. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. See, I do think that that did happen and it was necessary and it was lovely. It was a great time. And so here's, here's the, this intimate conversation started. So it's just 13 of them. And Jesus wants to start the conversation with a question. And he says, who do, you, who do the crowds who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied. And did you notice that they replied exactly what we read in seven and eight? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, the one, that the one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life, the exact same words. So basically, they're saying, Nope, we're hearing the same thing. Yeah, that, that's who, that's, that's the word out there. And I think Jesus probably pauses, you know, and then comes back with this. Ooh. But what about you? What about you? See, there isn't one of us that that question is not directed at. There has to be a time where that question is directed at us, and we have to. We've got to give an answer. And so when Jesus said, "But what about you?" Because remember, we, they. This is two and a half plus, he needs to know before he needs to hear them say distinctly, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Another version says, you are the Christ of God. You are God's Messiah. And I believe that Peter meant it. I think they did believe he was who he was. The only thing that hindered them was they still, self was still so prominent in their the lives that they wanted to believe that yes, he was who he was and because he was who he was, he is going to overthrow Rome and we are going to live the kind of life that God's chosen people should be able to live. They had this expectation, this anticipation that Jesus was who he was, but because of that, they were not going to be able to have an easy life. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. You know, when Jesus heard the answer, which was the right answer, but he also knew that they weren't expecting. Bounding on that. They were they were so confined to this life. Even though, yes, Jesus was going to set them free, they wanted, and this is the way human nature works too. We want comfort now. We want, we want you to work now. And Jesus is thinking about the freedom that He's going to give them forever. And that's a far cry than just freeing them from Rome. But they don't understand that. They don't want to see that yet. So I think now he's going to intersect this. And he says, "Now I don't want you to tell. It's not time. It's not time that everybody knows this yet. But I've got to start getting you thinking on this. Because this is not at all what you're expecting, so I've got to at least stir you in this direction. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And that shouldn't have been a shock to them. Because, you know, for the last over two years, they've watched these elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, they've watched Jesus be hurt and laughed at and just absolutely treated terribly by these religious men. So that part wasn't so hard that that he must suffer many things and be rejected by them, because I think they've been seeing that. But then when he said, and he must be killed, He must be killed, and I think that horrified them because how can you be killed? You are who you are. How can you be killed? We need you to do this for us, and I think that because a certain... Sometimes we hear something, and it it just terrorizes us or whatever, that we don't even hear the next line. I think sometimes it just numbs us that we... I don't think they even heard it. Every time Jesus talked about his death, he always talked about his resurrection. But I think they were so consumed with that word killed, death, all that, that they didn't even. Because obviously, when Jesus did rise, it was a big surprise. Which they should have known and been anticipating, been standing there at the tomb. So they heard killed. And because they were so stuck, and I think that's the word, you get stuck. You hear, you hear a certain, you hear, her hear a certain sentence, and you're stuck there. And look what you miss when you don't hear the rest. Then he said to them all, "No, he had said this to the disciples, but now he says to all them all, if anyone." So anyone means if you are, if you've achieved greatness in this world, and you have achieved you know, notoriety and all that, or if, if maybe this world looks at you and calls you a loser, but if anyone from that extreme to this extreme and everyone in between, if anyone wants to come after me, These are the terms, straight across the board. No, except for, no changes for anyone. This is the way it happens. If anyone would come after me, he must. Not, if you feel like it, I would suggest. No, you must. He must deny himself. See, does this go against every grain of human nature when human nature is all about self? And how Jesus is trying to teach us, them, that this is what is required. If you really want to come after him, if you really want to be a follower of his, you have to deny yourself. Because once you have accepted his gift of salvation you are not your own i cannot reiterate that verse that's what it means you are not your own anymore because you've been bought with a pretty big pretty big price you are not your own you've been bought with a price and now your life is not about you. It's about him in view of what he's done for you. Paul says you have to offer yourself back to him. That's your best thank you. You want to know? You, we could never repay him for what he's done. But you want to know how to at least do something to say thanks? Well, offer yourself back to him. You need to deny self. And then did you see how he says, and take up? He must take up his cross daily this is not just a one time thing take up your cross take up that fight that every day we have to fight against our own way our own desire our own our own way of dealing with life and and is no I want you to take up that cross and they wouldn't understand this they would, the people that were listening would understand this because um, the whole cross crucifixion thing was something that they were well acquainted with. And, and if a person before a person was going to die on a cross, the requirement was they had to carry at least the horizontal the horizontal bar. They had to carry that part of the cross to where they were going to be crucified. And they also knew that they would, would never return. It was a one-way journey. And so this visual, when Jesus said it this way, it, it made perfect sense. This is, this is, this is what he requires. There is, no, there is no other way. You want to be a follower of mine? This is how serious it is. You deny yourself every day. You take up that cross. The take up what you want and hand it over. And then dare follow me. And, and you know, sometimes take up your cross. What What is it in our life that just keeps pulling us backwards all the time? Is it is it worry every day? Do you have to get up and deal with something, whether it's a loss or whether it's a disease or whether it's loneliness or disappointment or, you know, there's... Every day, there's something that you have to deal with that isn't going to change, and it's either going to pull you away, or it's going to push you closer. And Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. And then he says these words, see, because these are very familiar words, but I'm telling you, I cannot say it enough, and I couldn't, I thought about it so much this week, because they're such easy words to say, but they are huge when it comes to our spiritual walk, and how real, how much do we really want this, because this is, this is big, deny yourself when every part of us wants to be consumed with ourself and to be able to take up our cross, to keep denying every day that self and say, Lord, I'm available, whatever you want, and it's not much, but here I am. I know you can multiply and make a lot out of it today. I'm just going to follow you. I'm going to let you have my day. Here's my plans, but if you want to change them, this is what he wants from us. And then he comes back with, with these words, for whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And that means whoever, wants, whoever chooses to put all his eggs in one basket, and that, that means all I want to do is concentrate on checking off my list of things that I want to achieve and do and experience, that 's all that matters to me is that that i I achieve my list that i that I get to where I want to get to, and all is about me and this life, and nothing is thought of of our of our next life and, and he 's very clear about that, but he says you you have the choice here you want to put all your eggs in this earthly basket and you want to make it all about you and but then you're going to lose it. And how, how is that? How is that going to be? Because when he says, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. In other words, you, you understand that you have been bought with a price. It isn't about you anymore. Your day every day has to start with sacrificing you, dying to self and letting him take over. Being crucified with Christ is no longer I that lives. It's saying those words every day, allowing him to do whatever he wants with you today. Whoever loses his life will, will find it. And I think this is the visual that we need to see here because I think a lot of people do not want, well, they don't think about it. I don't know if they really give it, two thoughts, but someday every one of us is going to stand in front of Jesus. It's just a fact. It is what Scripture has taught us, and we're not going to be standing in, in a group. We're going to be standing one-on-one. He's going to be looking at us. We're going to look in at him. And that's when you, that, that should raise the hair on your arms. That should be chilling. And from this one verse here, what he says to us is all going to have to do with whether you had all your eggs in this earthly basket, and it was all about you, and you checked your list, and boy, you were quite proud of yourself because you did great achievements. But then he's going to look at you and say, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. Or if you are willing to lose your life for him, He's going to look and not only call you by name, he's going to say, you follow the instructions, you're finished well, well done. Now enjoy all this. Now it's your choice, my choice. I remember I've said this many times, and I've said it to my children, and I've, I've said it, I even had to say it to Tom one time years and years ago. Because it affects our human nature, affects us all, no matter who we are. You have to decide where do you want to hear your well done. I remember saying that to my boys, you know. Because let's face it, you know, when you're growing pastors and you know, and the pull of, you know, it's it's just hard, and and ministry is hard, and and it's you know, especially when you know, negative things are said, or or whether you're not appreciated or all this kind of stuff that just affects us when we're not in the right place with the Lord. And we have to come to grips with where do we want to hear our well done? Do we want to hear it here? And I know it feels so good to hear it here. Or do we want to hear it from him? And I think this is what this verse is trying to get across to us. And then, what good is it for a man? What is it good what it good is it for a man to gain the whole world? Take their checklist and see that everyone has been checked off. Oh, you have gained the whole world, and yet you have lost or forfeited your soul. My version says forfeited his very self. But I, I like the other version better. You've you gained the whole world because self was in control, but you forfeited your soul. If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If anyone is ashamed of me, and my words. So I kind of thought about that. I thought about... I looked it up in the dictionary because, I, yeah, I know what a shame means, but yet I wanted, I wanted to hear from the dictionary what if you are ashamed of someone, and in this case, if, if you're ashamed of Jesus, and there's not one of us that, that would say that we were. I mean... I mean, of course I'm not ashamed of Jesus, but but in the course of this definition, I think we have to think about it. You're ashamed of him, even though, yes, you believe in him, but you really don't want to be seen together. You know, and what, what does that mean? It's, you know, it's... The people you're with, it's who, you, where you are, it's what you're doing. And, oh, yeah, I mean, yesterday I was in church. That's right. But, you know, today um, I, I'm in a different group now, and it's who I'm with, it's what I'm doing, conversation that I'm saying. And, and if, you, if you really do not want him to be seen with you, you are not letting him walk right along with you. And you are you don't mind that he is seeing you where you are and who you're with, what you're doing. Another way you can tell if you're ashamed of him is you don't want to talk about him. You you just you know, you just don't want to sound like some religious nut, and so you know, you just keep your mouth shut and you don't want to talk about him. Or you just you just really want to avoid him if possible because you, you kind of know that he's going to convict you and you just think, if I avoid him, then I'm not going to know, and I, if I don't hear, I won't know. I think that's why that verse in Romans 1, when Paul, after all what he's been through, and he's sitting there writing to the people of Rome and he, with, all, with such confidence and authority. I mean, he just has lived it and he believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God that changed me. It will change anyone. It's the power of God that will change anyone who chooses to believe. I am not ashamed because I look in the mirror and I know what I was and I know what he's changed me into. I, how can I be ashamed? And I, th- I thought about that. I thought. I just can't believe how people could be ashamed of him when he has shown his power his powerful love at the crucifixion, how he's shown his his powerful power in the resurrection, and how he you know he has just shown himself ascending to heaven. And how we know right now because of scripture, because I've chosen to believe by faith that this word is true, that he is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father in his rightful position, interceding for you and me. And I'm thinking to myself, who in the world wouldn't want this? And they're ashamed to let him come along or to talk about him or to even avoid him sometime. I tell you the truth, he said in verse 27, to tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. That is quite something. He made, he made that statement, and he preceded the statement by saying, to tell you the truth, because I know this is going to almost sound like too good to be true, but I'm telling you the truth. There's some of you standing right here that you won't taste death until you see, you see the Son of Man. You see the kingdom of God in all of its glory. And then verse 28 Eight days later, Peter, James, and John saw about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and went up into a mountain to pray. Now he took these three so often he took Peter, James, and John. do you ever did you ever think now why did he pick those three all the time? Were they his favorites? Were they his favorites? And I'm telling you, Jesus never worked that way because he doesn't pick favorites. He left nine behind because, you know, he knows us so well. He knows what we've got to experience, what we've got to go through, because he has the plan, and so he, again, equips us. So he knows who, who he's got to bring to equip for what is coming up. He knows the nine that's got to go through what they've got to go through. I mean, it has nothing to do with favorites. I think that that bears looking at that in a personal um, way, too. What lesson can we learn? How often don't we say, why do they get that experience and I don't? Or why do I have to go through this and they don't have to? You know, again, human nature just goes there. Why, why, why? And what does Jesus want? Just deny yourself, take up this cross and just follow me would you because I have such a greater plan in motion and I know you so well and I know what you've got to experience and go through you need to go through this because I know how I'm gonna use you and you're gonna you're gonna have what you need now might have not been pleasant might have not been what you expected but I know what I'm doing and what you have to go through because I know how I'm gonna use you and I know what you need to learn you have to learn. So as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. You know, you've heard that, the Shekinah glory. Oh, what a change in his face and his appearance. And, and it says that two men, Moses and Elijah, I don't know who was telling Luke this, but somebody who was very clear, there's no denying, it was Moses. It was Elijah. They appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. As much as I studied, I'm just going to fess up to you. As much as I studied this, I never really saw this before. I never really saw that these two men, I mean, I knew that Moses and Elijah were there, but I didn't really connect with the fact that they stood there, the three of them stood there, and they were in conversation. They stood there, and look what they were talking about. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Of course they were. Of course they were talking about that. Moses being represented a representative of the law, Elijah being a representative of the prophets? What did Jesus say he came to do? Not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. That's exactly what they were talking about. Moses and Elijah, together with Jesus, talking about this walk that Jesus is going to take to Calvary to fulfill the law and the prophets. Peter and his companions—they were—they were very sleepy. I don't know if th- this went on for a long time, and, and these poor guys kind of dozed off. I don't—I don't know. But, but it says that they were sleepy, and then all of a sudden, it's like they became fully awake, and they s- saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving, Peter said to him. Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Aren't you glad Luke just had to insert this? He didn't even know what he was talking about. But you know, that's typical Peter here. And and to his defense a little bit, I mean, this had to be such an experience that he's trying to say, I don't want to end." So let's just build three little, let's just Build three little houses here, and let's just stay put. This is perfect. But he didn't really understand, you know. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. I mean, that had to be something to all of a sudden. This cloud comes, and you're in the middle of this, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Imagine that. I mean, you're in this cloud and you can't see. It's like you're in this fog, and all of a sudden you hear this voice. A voice that that Jesus heard one a time before, and how perfectly the Father spoke to Jesus at just the right time, you know, at his baptism, to really give him the momentum to get started and get the ministry going, get his mission on its on its way. But here, what an affirmation too to hear his Father's voice saying, "This is my son, whom I have chosen to do this," and listen to him. I mean that had to just ring so wonderful in Jesus' ears that he had this that he had this moment with his father to hear these words of affirmation. And when the voice when the voice had spoken they found Jesus was alone and the disciples kept this to themselves. Not that Jesus told them, like sometimes he he would say, No, don't talk about this. But they chose to keep this to themselves. And told no one at that time at that time what they had seen i don't think that, I, I don 't think that anybody would have believed him anyway. I mean, you know how do you explain this to somebody? But I think even more so, it was such a personal moment it was it was such i mean something that they would never, never forget I was, I'm sure it was life changing in some respects and but in Second Peter chapter one, after Peter has been totally changed and you know, he is just running on Holy Spirit cylinders. I mean, he is writing these epistles and he's watched what the Lord's done through him. And, you know, upon this rock I build my church, you know, I mean, he has seen how the Lord has used him. And and he's writing and in Second Peter chapter one, there's this section where it's like he tells this whole thing. He just lays that right out there. I've got to tell you what I saw that moment in my life when I saw the kingdom of God. I saw him and that's all his glory. So anyway, 2 Peter chapter 1. Okay, then verse 37. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It it scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. And I begged your disciples, those nine, to drive it out, but they could not. Now, There's some that believe that this was a different kind of spirit and only Jesus could do it, but I don't believe that for a minute. Only because of verse 41, the way Jesus comes back. And because of human nature... You know, remember, these, these disciples have been given the power and the authority, and they've watched the Lord work. But when you've been on a mountaintop experience, when only you can only testify, this is what God did through me, and you are so taken by that. But remember how we said you got to be so careful after a mountaintop experience because there's such a fine line between then starting to think, oh, you know, a little spiritual cocky—that's what I call it. little—that's that's so dangerous because before you know, it, you're saying, "Well, oh, I think I'm getting kind of good at this." This is exactly what these nine needed because. I think they were getting a little lax in their dependence. They were starting to think, oh, you know, I kinda, I'm kind of good at this. And they were independent. They thought they had what they needed, not understanding that they need to deny themselves and take up their cross daily, surrender themselves daily, realize that they can do nothing without him daily because it's just so sneaky. That self gets in there and you start thinking you can handle it. That's why they couldn't do it. They needed this lesson. I'm sure it was humiliating, but every one of us sometimes needs a humbling experience. We need to get brought right down so that we are reminded that we can't do without him. No matter how good we think, we're we're at this. Because it's his power, it's his authority. keep going back to that verse. He's the one that's doing it. And the second we start claiming, that's why in the remaining verses he hits on that because it is something that human nature just goes to. Let's see who's the best at this. Who's the greatest at this? You can tell why this is all in this chapter. These are natural human tendencies that just want to destroy I'll tell you, this is so the clever devil at work. He just wants to get our eyes off him and clinging to him so that we look at ourselves. And look what happens. Look what happens when, when you try to do it yourself. Look, they couldn't do it. Can you imagine how embarrassing that had to be? But Jesus knew. He just knew they needed to... because. I think this was going to be an experience that these disciples, when they were sent out, you know, after, you know, when they went into all the world, I think they never forgot it. Whenever there was a tendency that they thought, you know, oh, maybe I'm getting a look, oops, I remember what happened. I mean, you know, it's one of those experiences. It's good that it happened. Sometimes our most humbling experiences, they're, they're, so, they're so embarrassing and they're, they are humiliating. But Jesus says, I have to do what I have to do so that you go out there and you go in my strength and you're following me, not you. Because he said, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Yes, he's talking to the crowd, but he knows that those nine are listening too. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. So even while the boy was walking, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. I I found that that um, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this verse, and he named this sermon The Devil's Last Throwdown. And, you know, we're... we're you know, we have gotten to the point where we understand that that a spiritual high can be dangerous because then we start thinking about ourselves that we're good at it. But I think just as important is from this is that the devil tries to have one more last throwdown before God does something great in our lives. And Satan will do anything he can to what? Keep us from the cross or keep us ineffective. And so, this last throwdown, the demon threw him down to the ground. I'm so glad I've got this in my mind now. That when I feel like the devil is throwing me down, and I now start thinking, huh, I wonder what God's going to do. Always know that these are the two prime times the devil's going to work before God's going to do something, and then after he does something, be careful. That's the two two prime times he, he knows that he can get us. Why? Because of our human nature. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy and gave it back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Oh, I bet they freaked at the thought of that. I bet they thought, no, again. This can't be. You're the Messiah. You've come to to you've got more power than Rome itself. And so this you are our ticket. You are going to be betrayed. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. I mean you can you can do anything. How could you be betrayed into the hands of men? but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. And so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. You know, sometimes I think we read that and we think, oh, the spirit must have just closed their mind. He did not. You know, when a teacher is teaching, I remember when I was in um, algebra and geometry it was so hard for me and i had i had a great teacher he really was wonderful and he would say to me now well now if you don't understand it which was every day but he would say if you don't understand it just admit it and ask me and i will be glad to to take the time after school or whenever, and we will go over this and over this until you understand it. That's what a teacher does. A good teacher. And we know Jesus was the best teacher. Now I had a choice because I didn't like algebra and geometry, and so you think I want to spend my time after school wanting more? You know, you you know, but this is so exactly you can relate this to, to this passage, because if you don't want to hear it, because, you know, plug your ears, because I don't want to hear that the son of me is going to be betrayed, because that means he's not going to free us from Rome, and this is what I wanted him to do, and this is not at all what I expected the Messiah, you know, they're just so in their snit, they're so in their snit of not getting their way, self is so on the throne, And that inhibits them. Think I'm going to ask any questions about that? See, if you don't ask questions, if you don't really want to know, you're not going to. And I thought, you know what? You look at that. They did not understand because they were afraid to ask them. Whose fault was that? Their own. They have no one to blame for not understanding and grasping this because all they had to do was ask. Why did Jesus say if you ask, if you seek, if you knock? It's right there available to you. But I want to see how many are really serious. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. See, you can tell that these guys are not in the right total surrender frame of mind. They don't really want to know because look how natural human nature has just taken over. Now they're arguing, disputing among each other. Let's see, who's, good, who's the best in this 12? Oh, maybe it's Peter, maybe it's James. You know, it's just terrible, their heart is just not in the right place here. Their motive is just wrong. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Jesus is so perfect at, tr- at explaining. So what did he do? He took a child... Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you is the greatest. Now you know a child is not going to have great worth because they can't do anything yet. You know they're pretty much uh, um, in need of care. Little, you you know, they they don't have a lot to give yet. They're little. And so maybe in the, in the scope of things, a child is just not worth a lot yet. They're the least. And Jesus says, you know what? There's something about this child, though, that I just love because what does a child do when when they're facing the unknown when they're when when something happens that they don't understand when when somebody doesn't share or when so, you know a child a child especially when they're in in emotion like fear or whatever what do they do they they find their mom or their dad, their grandpa or grandma. I just had this the other day with my five-year-old. We were at a basketball game, and there was a lot of people there. And what I just loved is that, you know, this was the first time that my five-year-old was at a basketball game like this. And so he was experienced, you know, that he had never totally been at before so he wasn't sure of. And so I just loved the way he just maneuvered his way right over so he was right tight to me. And it felt wonderful because he knew if he was close to grandma, all is well. And then and then there were times with, with my boys, with grandchildren, I'm sure any if, if a child doesn't understand or is nervous or scared, they grab your hand. They grab your hand because they know, they know, they trust you so much, and they know that you're never going to lead them in a place that's wrong. From a mom or grandma's perspective, they are, they are so sure that there isn't any part of me that would lead them in the wrong direction. And Jesus is saying, "Um, that's exactly the same frame of mind I want from my children. Life is scary business. You don't, most of the time, don't understand it, what's coming at you. The best thing you can do is grab the hand of mine because you trust so much that I would never lead you in the wrong direction. I love you too much to let you go the wrong way. And you won't if you grab my hand. So maybe a child wasn't worth a whole lot. Maybe a child was the least of these. But in Jesus' mind, he's saying they're the greatest because they're doing exactly what I want them to do. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Can't you just hear that? He's not one of the elite 12 here, and there he is. He's going out there and in your name casting out demons. Can you believe that? He said, And what is Jesus' response? Don't stop him. I bet that was totally what John was not expecting to hear. I mean, he's Mr. Tattletail here, and he's expecting Jesus to say, oh, we've got to do something about that. He's going to be the big hero because Jesus was so glad that he told him about this. And instead, Jesus says, don't stop him, for whoever's not against you is for you. Maybe he's not one of the 12, but he has learned and he, too, can be empowered, and he, too, can have, and stand on the authority. Don't stop him. And, you know, Paul had this in Philippians. He was in jail. You know, he's in prison, and, and it's like he had a group of guys come and visit him one day and said, oh, Paul, you got to get out of here because we've, gotta, we've got some guys out here who are trying to take your place. They're trying to preach like you, and, and they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to usurp on your territory, and even though maybe their attitudes, maybe it was a self attitude, but Paul said that, you know, hey, when it comes to attitude, the Lord will take care of that. But if they're telling the truth, let them go. You let them preach the gospel. But then he also, in a, in a flip side, in Galatians, he says, if anybody is out there preaching, and it is not the truth, it is, it's a false gospel, it's a gospel other than the real one, like you're telling somebody that they can be saved in some other way. He said, may they be forever condemned. Then, then you start, you hear another side of Paul. Then he's, if they're not preaching the gospel, may they be forever condemned. But he's trying to say, if they're preaching the gospel... What does it matter who they are? They're getting the, the good news out there. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, as he we were, were gradually getting closer, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. He still had that stigma, you know? Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, you know, the Samaritans, they didn't want any part of Jesus coming into that territory because he was full-fledged Jew. He's on his way to Jerusalem. No way. And so they didn't welcome him, and this ticked James and John off. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? You know, James and John, they were brothers. And you, you know that they were, they were known as the sons of thunder. And you always wonder, you know, why did they get such a name? But I think just from the way they respond sometimes to situations, I think they had a sure fuse. You know, they got ticked off real quick. They needed anger management or something, you know. They were sons of thunder. And so this was kind of like, do you want us to take care of this? We can call down fire from heaven. Look at verse 55. This is how Jesus handles them. He turns and he rebukes them. That's all, that's all, we, that's all we hear. He turned to them. This was Jesus' response to their question. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? All Jesus did was look at them and rebuke them. And whenever you see the word rebuke, you know that the enemy is playing around here. And look, James and John, two of the 12, how easy for any of us to let let a little crack, a little fine line in our full armor of God happen and that's all it takes for self to get in there. And this is what happens. And Jesus rebuked them. Ooh. And then they went on to another village. But see, this is all, again, human traits that they're going to be up against, that we're up against every day. We're fighting flesh and blood. We're, fly, we're fighting our natural tendencies. We're fighting self that just, you know, we don't, we don't need... Um, when, when self is concerned, we we just have to float on the inner tube down down the rapids. We don't need to work at it at all. Self just takes care of itself. But when you want to fight against self, it's like swimming against the current. So. It is hard work, but it's a a choice that we can make that will be so worth our while. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus didn't say no to him. Did you notice that? He didn't say no, but here's a a man that volunteered. I would like to follow you wherever you go. Now, this is different than last week when the man who was healed with a demon wanted to follow Jesus too, and Jesus said, No, I want you to go back to your town, and I want you to tell them what God has done in your life. This time, the man says, I want to follow you, he doesn't say no. Jesus doesn't say no, but he says foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so, you know, he's very much wants us to know that if you want to follow him, it's not going to be an easy road. It's not going to be something that that you are not going to have your problems all all solved or or that it's going to be an easy life and it's going to be comfortable and... It's like Jesus just came right out and said these words. Just want you to know, it's going to be a hard road, but we know it's a very worthwhile road. But He just, Jesus doesn't pull pull you know the wool over our eyes. He doesn't he doesn't you know put this beautiful thing in front of our face that would think oh life now is just Jesus. No, he's he's right on the he's right on the money when it comes to the truth. He makes sure that we're no surprises. This is not easy, but worth it. He said to another man. So another man, Jesus says, follow me. The man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Let me go and bury my father. No, it's, it's not that this man's father just passed away and he had quick, to quick do a funeral. This is uh, an excuse. This is, this is when you hear people say, oh, oh, I want this, but just not today. Or um, I'll do that later. It's like the, the kids sometimes are misinformed thinking, you know, I want to have fun now. And then later, so dangerous. Because none of us knows what tomorrow may bring. And that's why, again, someone else came and that's why first Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. No, you do it now. No excuses, no delays. Today's the day. And it's still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And again, another excuse. Maybe this wasn't, isn't as long, but yeah, yeah, but Lord, I just want to do this first. I want to be able to experience this first. And then Jesus comes back, and this is how this chapter ends. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. That's why we saying what we did. I mean, you have to decide if you're going to follow, and there's no turning back. You, you move in the forward direction. There's, you don't turn back. I know this is a simple little illustration, but a few weeks ago, um, we went with another couple up to Boyne Mountain, and it was that uh, sky bridge, and it's a suspension bridge that's 1,200 feet long. And uh, the guys didn't want to go; I mean, they stayed back. And uh, but the two of us, we decided we were going to go, and we took the ski lift up the mountain. Beautiful colors. I mean, it was just a glorious day. But when we got on the top of the mountain, it was real windy. And, and we waited in a long line to go on this bridge. And the second we stepped on this bridge, we, at least it was my first time with a suspension, the first step I took, I, I couldn't believe how shaky. I mean, you feel like you're going to fall. And my friend. She was right behind me, and the first thing she did when she stepped on was grab a hold of me. <laughs> and I said to her right away, I said, no, 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 you've got to let go of me. You've got to hold on yourself, because I'm going to hold on myself, because otherwise it would be blind leading the blind. we both fall into the pit. You know, so what a biblical, I gave her right, right scripture right there and then. But then, then we were about a quarter in, and all of a sudden I hear my friend say, I can't, I can't do this. The wind is blowing, that thing is swaying, and we're just bobbing on the, as we take every step. And, and then in the center of that thing, there's all glass so you can just see down. I mean, it is, it is an experience. And she said, I can't do it. I'm, I'm turning back. And the, there was a lady, they people said according, and that lady that was near her said, I'm, I'm sorry, but there's no turning back. You have to go the whole route. And it was hard, and we had to hold on. And she held on to this rail, and I held on to this rail, and one step at a time, we walked across 1,200 feet. It was a slow process, but then we got to the other side, and we got on, on stable ground, and the two of us looked at each other, and we said, we did it. And when I was doing this lesson, I mean, never did I think that that crazy experience would be something that I understood that Jesus is saying. He's saying, yeah, life with me is like stepping on a suspension bridge. And you're going to feel like you're going to fall a lot. And it is not always stable. And there's going to be moments you want to turn around. But it doesn't work that way. You have to keep going. You have to keep moving forward. If you really want to know that service for me gets sweeter by the day, and sweeter as you get closer and closer to home, you get closer and closer to the end of that bridge, and then you get on dry ground and you get on stable ground, and it is a feeling like an achievement. And it's, you know, it's similar to the marathon. I mean, it's like you finished well. You you weren't a coward. You took. Some of the bumps and the bruises and the and the scary moments and the uncertain instabilities, but you made it. Because I grabbed his hand, just like I grabbed the railing, I grab his hand, and he takes us to the end. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service. We keep our eyes fixed. I've decided, decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, you can't lose. Heavenly Father, thanks for this lesson. 62 verses, but boy, were they power hitters. Lord, we want to make sure that we apply this and see exactly the whole theme of this big chapter how we are faced with our humanity every minute of every day. And we've got a choice. You've empowered us. You've you've stepped us out in authority. You've given us every tool that we need. But how quick it is to just watch self-weakness. But Lord, help us to realize when that happens that we can can reestablish ourselves with you. And even though life is never going to be easy and it will be just like a suspension bridge, Father, we know there will be an end to this life. And oh, what, what a, a different life we will then experience. That's our hope. That's what we hang on to. That's the truth. So thank you for making this so real to us tonight. We don't want to miss anything. And you don't want us to either. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.